episode 347, rolling out healthcare initiatives that actually get uptake with the populations you aim to serve. Today, I speak with Ian Tong, MD, about the Black Community Innovation Coalition. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I attended the STAT summit last week and heard the heart-wrenching story told by Charles Johnson, who is the founder of For Cura for Moms, which is a group dedicated to improving maternal health equity. Charles's family is African-American. After a planned C-section, his otherwise healthy wife died an avoidable death because 10 hours after the clinical team was alerted that she had internal bleeding, 10 hours later, they got around to willing her into surgery. At that point, she had three liters of blood or something in her abdomen. She bled out and died, leaving her newborn infant motherless. This all went down, by the way, at a large, incredibly well-respected integrated delivery network. One of the biggest issues in healthcare today Well, there are many issues, so maybe I should start again. One of the biggest issues in healthcare that is going to be discussed on this podcast today is how to engage those patients or members or employees or consumers who might need our healthcare industry to work better on their behalf. This is especially a problem, a well-known problem, when we consider those patients who our healthcare system in so many ways does not serve well. Many minority patients, Black people, other people of color, the LGBTQ community, people who do not speak English as their first language. These patient cohorts emerge on the other side of our healthcare industry, sporting patient outcomes that are even worse than our usual not-so-great average patient outcomes. So today, we're going to talk about a new coalition formed by Walmart and six other employers, plus Included Health, which Included Health is the combined entity of Grand Rounds and Dr. On Demand. They merged recently. So there was a coalition that was formed. It's called the Black Community Innovation Coalition. And in short, it's a new virtual care program aimed at combating health disparities among African-American workers. I wanted to learn more about this coalition. So today I'm speaking with Ian Tong, MD, about the aforementioned Black Community Innovation Coalition, the how and also the intent. Dr. Tong is the chief medical officer over at Included Health and also a clinical assistant professor and adjunct faculty in the medical school at Stanford. One reason I was so intrigued is that the Black Community Innovation Coalition leverages ERGs, employee resource groups in a way I thought was different. If you're unfamiliar, ERGs, or as I said, employee resource groups, used to be called employee affinity groups. Many big companies have them. These ERGs bring together groups with shared identities, shared experiences, shared interests. What I thought was worth contemplating, if you're interested in improving health equity, health outcomes, Through these existing ERG organizations, it might be possible to pull the healthcare system and these patients closer together to create healthcare benefits and care delivery models that are designed with them in mind. So what I think might be actionable to others relative to this coalition and its methodology is the best practice of building the engagement mechanism into the design of the initiative. So often it's an afterthought. If you think about it, we build the thing and then we wonder how to, in air quotes, market it like the marketing is this separate and sequential function. It's not. 
and marketing is also probably a limiting misnomer. This is especially true, though, when contemplating minority populations for a whole bunch of reasons that we get into in this conversation. So that's number one. Build the engagement mechanism into the program design. But here's number two. Consider the engagement mechanism relative to existing channels of engagement, i.e. ERGs or otherwise. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Ian Tong, MD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Stacey Richter, thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be here with you. I'll tell you what I would love to chat with you a little bit about your initiative with Walmart, titled the Black Community Innovation Coalition. Do you want to just, what's the overview of that program and, and kind of the intent there? Yeah, we want to raise the standard of healthcare for everyone. And we're very serious about the everyone part. As your listeners probably know, the health of a given population and our member of the Black community could probably be predicted based on their zip code. And so these disparities and these differences are something that we knew we needed to address. The Black Community Innovation Coalition is um, really a collaboration between seven companies. Walmart is the largest, Target, Best Buy, Accenture, State Farm, Genentech, Medtronic. All of these companies have come together to say, we think we can do more in partnership and collaboration than we could do on our own to begin to address some of these health inequities. So we're talking about the seven partners of the Black Community Innovation Coalition. And and you ticked off a few, Walmart being the largest, Genentech, Best Buy. You mentioned together, much more could be accomplished than alone. Are we talking about this from an employer standpoint? I'm assuming that each of the seven companies that you mentioned are large employers. So they're thinking about this from a self-insured employer standpoint or just a employer standpoint in general. There are certain things that we can do with our own employees. Or obviously Walmart is in healthcare. Genentech is a big drug company in healthcare. So is the consideration that they're also bringing to bear talents of their healthcare division. Obviously, included health is also in healthcare as well. So what's the thinking here? Yeah, and this is not a commercial or retail partnership where we're selling new product lines to the general population. This coalition is really based on companies that we are already serving in some way, shape or form, either through navigation services or care delivery. And we are specifically targeting their associates or employees. So the first half of your question there was like, is this focused on the employees? The answer is yes. And the way that we're doing that is we're actually approaching them through their employee resource groups. So we are coming to them and saying, we have some hypotheses about what we think drives some of the healthcare disparities and some of the maybe avoidance or hesitancy to seek care for some of your special populations, specifically the Black community in this case. And so even though we have those hypotheses, we do not want to enter into your workplace environment with the assumption that we know all the problems that that exist there and all the challenges that that are impacting someone's care or the care of your employees or associates. So the goal here is to listen first. And so we're approaching them through these ERGs. When you say an ERG, what do you mean exactly? So these are groups, maybe another word for them is affinity groups, right? Groups of people that have said, we have some shared experience and we consider ourselves members of that community, whether that's veterans or members of the Black community, or it could be multi-ethnic individuals that that want to be part of a, a multicultural group. And they support one another in having community and a sense of belonging with their employer. But they also can be a really important channel within the company for communications, for driving innovation through the workforce. In many cases, they are used to inform HR leaders and executives around policies or benefits des- that are designed. 
to make sure that those policies or those benefits really address the needs of the entire population. The reason why I think they began to exist was because if you take a one-size-fits-all approach to your employees, that is not going to be adequate or complete. You will invariably leave certain people out. In fact, you're very likely to leave out people who are within the minority, right? People who are in smaller populations that may not be populating the, the boardroom or the executive leadership team. They may not have great representation there. So everything from benefits and health insurance plans and caregiver support and so on that, a, that an employer may want to help support their employees to be the best and most productive employees they can. Those programs may not be targeted or, or customized to all of your members or your associates. These companies have identified these are valuable members of our team. We need to build benefits and offer services that are accessible to these individuals and that will approach them with cultural competency or even cultural concordance. They're seeing a great deal of value in that. And that's what we're trying to build together. What I'm hearing you say is a solution to the age-old problem that employers everywhere have, which is engagement. A scenario that transpires all the time is the employer creates some amazing program, which is designed to help employees, and then no one uses it. So it sounds like the way that this program and opportunity is different is that it's starting out with engagement as part of the plan. I think so often it's like an afterthought. Okay, let's make the thing and then we'll figure out how to get it out. It's almost like you're building within the structure of this coalition, the engagement mechanism. Exactly. These groups have already formed, right? They're already existing. They're already providing services and they're already trusted by the members of those communities within the organization. We are saying we have some hypotheses, but we're not going to stop there. We're going to listen before we build anything or do anything more. We want to listen and we want to hear from you. So we're conducting surveys through the ERGs. We are um, having conversations and focus groups with them to gain one or two really important that might be specific to the black population or community. They might be specific to a particular employer. However, also a particular group of employees within retail or within healthcare or with across these different sectors that may have identified a special need. And we want to make sure we build the right products to actually make a difference and move the needle. What we did to, to prepare for this work is we looked across and did research across multiple different types of health conditions or problems. We looked at access and engagement across benefits. And what we see is there's no there's clearly a disparity in almost every case, whether you're looking at cancer screening rates or whether you're looking at blood pressure, uh, you know, cardiovascular or cardiometabolic outcomes of stroke and, and, and heart attacks, and the mortality rates and the prevalence of many of these illnesses is just higher in the black community. The death rates are higher in the black community. We've controlled for other variable factors. So race is, is playing a major role here and, and race is a false construct. So it really shouldn't be, right? It's not, there's, there's not a genetic difference that's driving these disparities. It's multiple other factors and that's what we wanna get at. We don't wanna leave that out and over-medicalize the problem. So what that means in some cases is it might be around benefits and access and engagement, like you said. I suspect that in many cases, it's actually meeting people with some cultural humility acknowledging that they have been left out of the system and that we and that we're going to take a different approach that might include for instance acknowledging that their family or their community or their church might be an important factor and and they may have important responsibilities there and we need to take that into account when we create their care plan or their care journey it's a very different approach but it's one that is customized to the black community and and we think it's and we just think that based on the outcomes we just have to be doing something different than what we've been doing where we see those disparities and they have not improved, you know, over the last four or five decades. A lot of the solves here, there's going to be some sort of virtual 
component to it, right? If we're talking about helping navigate patients, for example, or if we're talking about doing quality matching, or if we're, we're talking about actually providing telehealth, all of this stuff is going to go through a virtual front door of some sort, I'm assuming. But then again, it's been said more than once that digital literacy in and of itself is a social determinant. Like, first of all, is that accurate as far as you're concerned? And then secondly, yeah. if so, how are you squaring what could be a counterpoint there? I would just say that I have a different, I probably have a different take on the digital literacy question. I'll be honest. I think that people in the Black community need to be told the truth, which is the game is already rigged, I would say. It's already rigged against them and there already are health disparities and that some of those disparities are probably based on their zip code and where they live and the fact that they may be in a primary care desert and that they need and they need to know that is going to impact their life and their life expectancy and that of their children. And I think if they're told that truth, then I think and if they're told that one way to combat that and to neutralize that that impact is to actually get access to care and that they can do that from their home virtually, then I think you will find that they will become very literate. The bigger problem here is that they don't trust that system. There's a great deal of hesitancy around engaging care and there's a high level of avoidance. They're probably 28%, 30% more likely to avoid care or delay care because they're going to wait to the very last moment because they do not trust the system. So they're going to wait till they're sick enough that they have no other choice but to have to go in. So your hypothesis is then it's not that there is some sort of fundamental illiteracy. It's that just where there's a will, there's a way. And if there's no trust there, then no one's going to try. That, that, yeah, I think there is partially an effort question here because there's just a lack of trust or belief that the people who are telling you, and, and if you think about that message too, which is maybe you just don't understand, like that's a pretty paternalistic view, I would say, just so that people know where I'm speaking from a bit is I have my own not-for-profit. I have kids that come from Washington, D.C. and inner city Memphis and New York City. And they grow up in multi, you know, two-bedroom, multi-generation homes with seven or seven or eight people living in the home all together. And these are the kinds of people that we're talking about, right? These are the kinds of people that we're saying, and they don't have digital literacy. But all those kids, when they come and visit, we send them to the Cal Summer Rugby Camp and they stay with my family. So I get to know these amazing young men. They have the highest level of digital literacy. They're, they're much more literate than I am. And they help their family members. I've witnessed this with them helping their family members and support them. The issue here is probably more the hesitancy and lack of trust. But it's not that they can't actually operate the, the technology. The other thing that I'd say, though, is we don't actually compensate clinicians or health systems to provide that education. That's the other thing. I think that's a piece that we, we should really promote so that we can really, really drive engagement. It's We can call it digital literacy or you can call it education, but I would just say it's building trust with the healthcare system and, and allowing people to know that they can act, get a high percentage of their clinical questions addressed and answered through this other tool. And it's much more cost-effective and efficient for them and neutralizes the fact that they live in a primary care desert. And so it could be life-saving for them. As you have said, many times. This is very multifactorial, but there's a lack of trust. We had on Nikki King, who spoke about culture in more rural communities where like you don't go to the doctor when you're well. Like the only time you go to the doctor is when you're really sick and you have no other choice. If there's that sort of cultural understanding that doctors don't prevent anything, they simply heal you when it's gotten to the point where you have no other choice. That sort of cultural understanding kind of coupled with 
You said that health systems don't get compensated for building trust. Well, they also tend to not get compensated for creating beautiful telehealth journeys that are elegant and simple. There was just actually a survey that was done where patients everywhere were complaining about the complicated and cumbersome telehealth patient journeys. And someone made the comment, okay, basically, we're now creating a digital version of the <laughs> terrible patient yeah. journeys that we can experience in real life. Right, right, right exactly. And that's, it, right. And, that, and that's the perfect example. Like it's the, techno, the technology is not exacerbating those disparities or the, the technology is not making that experience worse. It's, so, it's a bad experience and it's broken already. And, and we're not fixing the fundamental problems there. That's what I was trying to get at, which is give a good incentive for the health system to provide that, that level of trust building and relationship building. And if they can do that and they're compensated to do that, then they'll do it and they'll do it well. And I think you'll see that we'll, we'll just see improvement in the outcomes. Often technology or, or virtual care, the saying is that it'll, it could exacerbate healthcare disparities. It's really important that your listeners know that virtual care or, or telemedicine was really invented to address disparities. Like that, that is the origin of it. Every health system in this country pre-COVID had someone who was a champion for a rural patient or a patient who was in an you know urban area. Maybe they were three bus rides and transfers away from the from getting to care. So those individuals that were in like speech therapy or speech pathology or physical rehab and so on, those individuals turned to virtual care and telemedicine so that they could provide the services to those patient populations. That it has been a tool to provide health equity for them for years. And so I think it's, I don't know where the narrative came from, the, the exacerbation, but my guess is it came from some pretty traditional, well-established healthcare players that were nervous about, that were more nervous about virtual care being competitive to them. Here's something that I have heard multiple times. Factor this in, if you wouldn't mind. The broadband issue. One of the things that also is touted as a social determinant is that there are some areas and some communities that do not have access to broadband or it's super expensive either way. Then coupled with that, I've also heard it said that patients, people really, consumers who aren't working from home. Like those of us that work from home, if we want to have a doctor visit whenever we want during the day, we have a private space in our home in which we can call a physician. But if you're working on the floor in some retail establishment, it's much harder to like, you might as well actually just go to the doctor because finding a private space in the back of the big box yeah. store might be difficult. So how would you address those two frequently cited aspects here? There's no question that our infrastructure has left out, again, zip codes or these neighborhoods that maybe have the digital redlining of not having broadband access or internet. Most of those neighborhoods, though, do have mobile access. So they have cellular or mobile access. And as long as you have a decent connection, you can actually have a successful video encounter from just about anywhere. That gets to another question of what about affordable plans and so on. And I, this is a little bit outside of our scope, but if we have contingencies for health crises or emergencies, and we can make the platform more affordable for people with those data plans or even healthcare phones, right? I think we could be creative there on the digital redlining piece. The second question was just privacy. This is what I usually thought about. Like this service has to be able to work for a single mom or a single dad who's working a couple jobs and just can't access care from nine to five. So it has to be 24 seven, has to be there on the weekend, has to be there on the holidays. I can't require that they have to travel across town and, and engage a 90 minute commute just to get to, to healthcare. Now the privacy question is one where we have a number of patients that see us from their car. Exactly the scenario you gave is they're in their car in the parking lot with the car parked but doing a visit with one of our clinicians, 
We've created the protocols and guidelines for our clinicians so that they know what to do in these in some of these scenarios so that they can still deliver the care that these individuals need. It's not a perfect solution, to be honest, Stacey. It requires a fair amount of translation between what you would do in person versus what you would do virtually. But but that person at least still can access that care 24-7. And I think that's super important because as we all know, it's not an alternative of them going, that they're going to go in person. They will wait till it's too late or things get worse. And then they'll and then they'll say, okay, I'm going to have to miss work now. And, and I think that's what the smart companies, these smart, large, self-insured employers realize, that they are certainly losing productivity, efficiency, and turnover in their workforce. And so I think they know and have accepted now that, that they have to make parts of their workplace even available in safe places and private places where people can do a virtual visit. Just tracking the idea here, we're starting out working with the employee resource groups, the ERGs, as you mentioned. And I'm just thinking about a hypothetical here. Maybe the maternal and infant mortality is a place to start. There is some group that is attracting a large number of, let's just say, younger Black women. And within the context of that group, it's brought to bear that there is a maternal program, some kind of, of program that is available to women who get pregnant. Is that kind of the idea? And then, I don't want to say recruiting, but women in that group are then able to enroll, like the program is presented and they're encouraged to enroll. If we're just kind of tracing what's going to happen, is that the start? That's right. And that's how you do it, right? Because I think Walmart was actually public with this number. I want to say it was like every 17 minutes, someone goes on maternity leave out of their workforce. This is a huge, this is not a um, hypothetical situation. This is, this is happening all the time, many times a day where someone has a life-changing event, finding out that you're pregnant is one of those. We would offer them the ability to have counseling, to be able to ask questions. This is especially important for people who might be considered to have an at-risk pregnancy. And it won't be a surprise to the listeners that people who have social determinant of health challenges or come from under-resourced neighborhoods, they're a little more likely to fall into that higher risk group. And it's been known for years that telemedicine can actually reduce infant mortality and complications for those high-risk pregnancies. it's That was uh, Kaiser released a study on that in 2014, 2013, 2014. That was a pretty comp- comprehensive review. It was in health affairs. They described their program there and that didn't require that they had a doctor. In some cases you had doulas or you had uh, social workers or you had nurses who really just were there to answer questions and provide, again, culturally competent listening skills and acknowledgement of the challenges within the communities. Then giving those expecting moms a of good advice of what to avoid and dispelling certain myths, letting them know the risks of alcohol or smoking, how important it is to make sure they don't have sexually transmitted diseases during the later stages of pregnancy. All of these are, are things that people just needed to be educated and they were able to make pretty impre- um, impressive impacts. So that's exactly how this program would work. And how does this not create yet another silo, which has been one of the issues that has been brought up relative to having too many digital front doors, for example. In your opinion, and I know some of this is being built right now, but how do you see these digital front doors so that you don't wind up with multiple care providers all working at cross purposes? The idea that you have multiple point solutions. Yeah, I feel very strongly that everyone should probably have a virtual primary care clinician that they can identify with. That does not mean that they have to replace, in all cases, their in-person primary care clinician, 
but they have to have that virtual option as well. It could be a combination of uh, virtual primary care solution that they are matched to a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a PA or so on, but someone who is their primary care clinician who also is working with a, a team of social workers and nurses and pharmacists and so on, which is the care team, which also helps to provide touches in between those primary care visits. So that person is able to get all of those services in one place. So in this model, the, the primary care clinician is the quarterback, but they are supported by a team of other healthcare professionals. And that patient can access all those services in one place. The journey might start with counseling and education and building a relationship and making sure that expecting mom knows what her benefits are so that she gets good advocacy there. She's looking for an OB guy. Maybe she doesn't know where to go for that. We can actually guide and say, okay, we can quality match you. But we also want to match you to someone who's going to be able to provide you with culturally competent care as well. And if we can find you culturally concordant care and that's what you want and that's important to you, then we should do that. And so we will do all of that to make sure that they land in the right place with a high quality clinician that's going to give them and their baby the best chance of, of success. We'll provide them with that longitudinal relationship. And we'll also have the behavioral health practice if postpartum, they end up with postpartum depression or issues there. So I totally agree. I love that question because that's how we see the world is it all should be in one. And we want to anchor that around the, the virtual primary care clinician. So the way that you're foreseeing a way forward here is that traditionally telehealth has been a pretty reactive endeavor. Like, I feel like I have a sinus infection. I find someone who's going to prescribe an antibiotic and then I'm done and I never talk to that person again. In the model that you're suggesting, the patient has as much of a relationship with his or her virtual care team as they may with their not virtual care team. Yeah. In some cases, it's it might even be better. I, I, I don't have evidence for the better part, but what I'll just tell you is we actually published a paper last year. I think it was April of last year. This was in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings Quality Outcomes and Innovation Journal. I think it was called more, I think it was Beyond Convenience. I was a co-author on the paper. We partnered with some Harvard researchers on this. And we looked at what do patients say that they like about visits when they give you a five-star rating for a visit? What is it that they're, what, they, what do they comment on? So we had this comment section a lot of people, more than you would think, volunteered to make comments. So I think we had 50,000 patients in that study or so or more that had created, that had spontaneously or involuntarily entered comments. Anyway, long story short, the number one thing by far that they commented on fell into the category of establishing rapport, good information sharing, or they got what they wanted, just like you said in this sinusitis case. Did I get what I want? I wanted an antibiotic. Did I get that? It turns out that, that, um, that establishing rapport and sharing information were the top two things that patients spontaneously commented on. We really took that to say that the patients do develop these relationships. And so some of that data, along with the quality data that we had, is why we launched virtual primary care. We saw that the relationship part was there. We saw that the quality part was there. And that included for chronic conditions. And then within behavioral health, this is why I said it might even be better in some cases, is that what we saw with the behavioral health practice was we actually see larger reductions in PHQ-9 and GAD-7 scores. Those are inventories that can tell you how someone's mood is and whether they're suffering from moderate or severe depression or at risk of moderate or severe depression. And we're able to lower their scores very significantly for a large percentage of that population and it outperforms brick and mortar practice. We had Rebecca Etz on the show from the Larry Green Center. And they, yeah, I know her. 
there we go. So she's doing a lot of research relative to what the most effective primary care looks like. One of the things that she found is the best measure is how the patient rates the relationship with their PCP. It is a huge quality indicator. So I would definitely recommend if you want to hear the why on that to go back and and, and listen to that show that we spent a half an hour talking about that one point because it is a little bit counterintuitive. I mean, I can imagine, especially if you're a physician who, what's the average? Doctors cut off a patient after seven seconds or something. It might be. First of all, I'm a huge fan of of Rebecca Etz and that work that they've done at the Larry Green Center. So I would definitely point people to that work. And I will, I didn't realize you had interviewed her. So I would definitely love to hear that podcast. It makes sense to me what she's saying there. We really want to pay attention to that encounter being the best encounter possible because that in in some cases might be the only chance you get to engage that patient. And so we want to meet them with culturally competent care. We know you're right about that seven or 20, 10 seconds, how quickly a doctor interrupts. But what we are focusing on is that first two minutes, that first 120 seconds needs to establish engagement of that individual. And and it has to be communicated to them that the care they are getting is personalized and customized to them as an individual, as a black individual who has been the victim of of racist, structural racism and racist policies for decades. And, And we have to fit that into that first 120 seconds so that we can be successful and build the relationship with them. And it definitely feels like there is more, and maybe I'm just in the wrong meetings, but I'm seeing so much more of an effort in the virtual space to close equity gaps than maybe in the in-person space. And it could potentially be that there just aren't in-person facilities. As you said, if there's a PCP desert, there is no in-person. Let's talk about the impact on, say, self-insured employers. So if we're just talking about this in strictly financial terms, which unfortunately is how many make decisions. Why is it so important for self-insured employers? Two points. One is if someone has these structural barriers and social determinants of health in their way, I would just say that virtual care eliminates the challenge of finding that local physician or quality matching within your local zip code and area. That's extremely difficult to do, but you can see how Having a multi-state licensed practice that is a very diverse practice, which again, ours is, right? So I'm taking 21% of our doctors who are black. We're only 5% of the doctors, if you're lucky, in your local community might be black. 21% of our doctors who are black are now across multiple states with multi-state licensure, and they can provide that culturally coordinated care access to, to, to many more people. So that's an important piece. And it also ties into the cost component. And this has been proven out that if we can avoid an in-office visit, or we can avoid an ER or urgent care visit. Those visits are more, much more costly than virtual visits. So every one of those that we replace with a virtual visit is a major savings to the payer, whether that's the employer or the health plan. Obviously, this becomes important. The larger the percentage of the workforce consists of some of these marginalized groups who are not using the healthcare system in a way that's going to create the best outcomes for that patient population. There's no question. Our population is growing in diversity. We also are growing in age. Our work, our workforce is actually aging. And I don't know if that's something that you've talked about or that, that comes up, it has come up in other episodes, but we're going to have an older workforce. We are going to see more diabetes, more hypertension, more depression, more obesity. And the patients are telling us that they do want to see People who have some shared experience, especially within uh, the Black community, especially within the LGBTQ plus community, 
So you, can, you really can start to understand why this is important to this patient population and they want to feel safe when they go into the doctor's office that they're not going to be judged or looked down on. Yeah, I think it, it definitely goes back to the question, what is the point of the care? Is it simply to have an office visit and count that as a half-decent transaction? <laughs> Or is it actually to produce better patient outcomes? If we have patients who either are avoiding care until they have an acute event, or if they are, when they do go to the doctor, it's basically a waste of money because there's no communication there or people don't trust what they've been told. Either way, let's just say that the value of what's being provided is minimized. Exactly. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. The, we cannot afford to have low value encounters. We don't have enough primary care clinicians. We don't have enough behavioral health clinicians. So if we are losing people out of the system because they will not engage because the care is low value, that is tremendously expensive overall for our healthcare system. And we just can't afford to do it. Another really interesting point that you were making is that even if a community doesn't have a large enough, let's just say, percentage of clinicians of color or of the different ethnic or backgrounds as the patients need. There's that quote, you have to see it to be it. So it could actually be a way to encourage a a more diverse pool of healthcare practitioners when they can actually see people and aspire to go into the healthcare profession. So I think on a number of different levels, it's it's a really interesting thinking. If you were going to give people some advice, resources maybe to learn more about some of the things that we've been talking about, where would you direct them? Yeah, thanks for that question. I would say do the implicit uh, association test. Um, If you go to Google, implicit.harvard.edu, it'll take you to the implicit bias assessments. These are free and you can gauge yourself and you can become aware. I would just say be brave enough to get the answer just so you can acknowledge that you have implicit bias. I have done it and I know that I have implicit bias in areas. And so I want to be a good person. So I'm glad that I'm aware and I know where I, I can improve. I would also direct you to the, the CDC REACH site, the Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health. There's some nice resources there. And then I would actually direct people to our own site, includedhealth.com. There you can actually register and ask a question of one of our staff to learn more about the approaches that we're taking. Dr. Ian Tong, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.